Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week, a look at culinary diplomacy, how nations' foreign emissaries use their cuisines for good causes, as well as to promote the culture and food of their home countries. In the next 30 minutes, we head to Washington, D.C., the world's diplomacy capital, for a look at a newly opened Ukrainian restaurant. We hear from the teacher of a foodie course for aspiring American diplomats. We'll also meet a Haitian chef in New York who's promoting her country as a culinary destination and speak to a former economic advisor to French President Emmanuel Macron. That is all ahead on the menu on Monocle Radio. So now to Washington DC where Monocle's Chris Jermak will be our guide to the world of food and diplomacy. He begins by explaining what exactly culinary diplomacy means. I am the private chef of the Belgium Embassy. And for the moment, I'm doing 2,500 waffles. What a lovely day. How many have you made so far, do you think? Uh, 2,300. Like I say, a long day. Well, yesterday we did some, I think, around 1,500. And uh, yeah, every box is uh, 100 waffles. So yeah, a lot of work again and again and again and again. A good thing to do? What, is it, what does it mean for, for Belgium, for the embassy, for you to kind of be, be part of this? But I think it's just interesting also for the people who cannot travel to taste a little bit of Belgium, I will say. You cannot find that in every corner, so like that everybody can enjoy it. That's it. Soft power of Belgium is waffles. I think French cooking is the key of the diplomacy in every way. Every discussion is around a good table. And again, that kind of waffle is uh, very famous in my country, like beer. So yeah, next question. That was Belgium's U.S. embassy chef, who I caught up with at a recent open house of EU embassies. And what he's describing there, waffles and beer, is an example of gastro-diplomacy, which is distinctive from culinary diplomacy. But I'll let Johanna Mendelssohn Foreman, who teaches a course on food and diplomacy at American University's School of Foreign Service, explain the difference. Culinary diplomacy is action with food by the state, whether it's a government or a kingdom, that's culinary diplomacy. And using food in official acts, it's part of soft power. It's under the rubric of public diplomacy. Gastro diplomacy is a very funny subset of public diplomacy because it's both using food, I would call it citizen public diplomacy, because it's practiced by states in terms of collaboration with the private sector, promoting national foods, promoting brands. It's closer to branding. But it's also practiced by citizens. And every day we see stories about refugees who can't speak a language but need to find a sustainable livelihood. And what really surprised me in that gastro-diplomacy is that the World Bank World Development Report, I think the most recent one, 2023, talks about sustainable solutions for migrants because no one's going home. And food is something that I've worked in, entrepreneurship, social gastronomy, which is yet another subset of this, where people use this kind of work. Johanna Mendelssohn Foreman has worked for the U.S. Development Agency, USAID, and the World Bank in the past. And her current course for aspiring diplomats has been introducing students to chefs who have worked with the U.S. State Department in the past. There was a culinary chef's corps, part of culinary diplomacy, that was started when Secretary Clinton was Secretary of State. 
The idea was to bring chefs from all over the United States to support American cuisine, but the diversity of American cuisine by one, cooking meals when diplomats came, but also going abroad and cooking diverse cuisines and embassies. And it was headed by, I think, Jose Andres was part of it, and it was followed on when Secretary Kerry succeeded Clinton. And the James Beard Foundation was the partner. So it was a very interesting collaboration of a food foundation with the State Department. Well, it was stopped during the Trump administration for obvious reasons, because he liked hamburgers. But it was revived again uh, just this past February with Secretary Blinken. The new chef's corps is different, but there has never been a history of it. So I said, what a good project for graduate students to do. I have since discovered that there are very few written records. There may be some embassy reports, but it's going to be all oral histories. So the students are going to get to talk to all these famous chefs. And at the same time, they're going to learn about food as statecraft, which is what the course is called. I wonder if you could talk about the role that chefs have taken on. It seems like that, too, has changed over the last few years. You're absolutely right. Chefs have always had a high level of trust. And the reason is because you can walk into a restaurant in Washington or London and you know you're not going to get poisoned. I mean, that in itself implies trust. But then chefs have also become, I think, the new activists. They've taken on some of the issues that we all see with climate change, migrant crises, and they've also taken on food as medicine, you know, the healthy aspects of eating. So the emphasis now is buy local, use your local farmers, connect with the community. So it's kind of an interesting evolution of chefs becoming the new activists in this whole food revolution we're watching. You started your career in conflict, peace building, in that kind of area. Right. I wonder if there was a moment for you where there was this sort of realization of the role that food security played in your job and your experiences. I think two things triggered it. I was very fortunate to be involved in what I think was some of the new post-Cold War thinking about nation building and reconstruction after conflict. I worked at the World Bank in their first post-conflict unit. It was a heady time when people were working to try and rebuild countries that had been war-torn. But after about six years, there's some countries went back into conflict, and I didn't see a lot of progress for all the heady theoretical framework of political scientists, economists, making any sense. What I did see living in Washington was the impact of conflict by the diasporas that were in Washington. And it was those diasporas who were, on the one hand, victims of war, but also carrying their culinary traditions as a way of survival. A former senator once said, you can always tell where America is at war by what restaurants open. And it's really true, because if you go to the Eden Center, which is out in Virginia, you see the Vietnamese population that came after the 75 fall of Saigon. You go all over Washington, though little Ethiopia is no longer in existence on 9th Street, but you see the Ethiopians who came when the Mengisto government came in. You see Afghans from the first Russian invasion in 1979. And then the Central American population was the last gasp of the Cold War, where we have Nicaraguans, El Salvadorians, and Guatemalans who were all fleeing from these internal wars. 
And that was perhaps more interesting a story than seeing whether these countries could create sustainable long-term solutions because they couldn't. Your course that you teach here at American University, the School of International Service, what is the central message, I guess, in your mind? What do you try to impart to students about how they should be approaching this? Well, the course itself, which has evolved because we pick different conflicts, evolves from the principle that food is a both a conflict prevention mechanism if there's adequate amount, but it's also a driver of conflict. And then we use particular cases. I've mentioned those cases here in Washington of diaspora, but students also have to look at other cases that they select from the World Bank's index of the 40 most conflictive states and write a study of them. If they can find those cuisines in Washington, oftentimes they do. They interview the restaurateur or the caterer, So there's a lot of field work for them as well. But they begin to recognize how important food is because it also gives them an ability to approach people where they may go and say, well, how did you escape the war? But if they say, I like your cuisine, you know, how did you start cooking it? It's an easier opening. That was Johanna Mendelssohn-Forman. Now, for any students at American University's upcoming semester, there is a fitting new addition to Washington's culinary scene. The first Ukrainian restaurant, called Ruta, is currently in a soft opening just a few blocks away from the U.S. Capitol building. It's run by Ruslan Falkov, a former chief of staff at the Ukrainian embassy. I worked at the embassy of Ukraine and I, I was chief of staff there and I was not involved in any business activities, so I was thinking only from the side of a regular customer that it's weird because Ukrainians have... Of course, a lot of restaurants in Chicago area. Of course, restaurant, famous restaurant, Veselka in New York. But still, there were, there were no restaurants in Washington, D.C. That's when this idea, I think, was born. And after end of my diplomatic assignment, I was deeply involved in this project. So you maybe know the history of what Ruta is. So this is flower, it's particular flower in Ukrainian. That's only during the night of Ivana Kupala, only one night. So this is actually the old legend that comes from pagan times. And there is only one night when this flower blooms red color. So typically Ruta is yellow flower. But there is only one night when it blooms red, so young men and women can go to the forest and in case they find this flower, that means they will find their true love. Ruslan, was there something that you pushed to have on the menu that you discussed with the chef here? I think I was mostly interested in the cocktail menu here. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see we have a lot of very special cocktails, of course, all about Ukraine that we designed here, especially for this place. We have a signature cocktail, Patriot, which is layered in blue and yellow colors. Ruta's head chef is Dima Martsenyuk, formerly the executive chef of New York's popular Ukrainian restaurant Veselka. Martsenyuk says about 80% of the menu at Ruta is a variation of recipes he ate as a child in Ukraine though a few things were adjusted to American tastes. Ruta offers Ukrainian vareniki, or dumplings, not just with potato and sauerkraut, but with buffalo chicken and short rib, for example. But at the center of it all is, of course, borscht, something Chef Martsenyuk helped to get recognized as part of Ukraine's intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO. I always eat with sour cream. 
Perfect. Just pour it inside and mix it. Just I mean, you can it. try it without, but then you, when you add it, it's, you got some little bit. It's, it's beets oh, it's and nice beets, carrots, potatoes, like sweety little bit. When you add like bite of sourness, it's super balanced. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. We always got bored with stuff here. Okay. Okay. Thank you very Smash much. Smash Noah. Appreciate <laughs> What is that? Smash Noah. Smash Noah. It's bon appetit. Uh, keep answering the question why you in DC. Uh, my answer is I'm here because of borscht. Like uh, the whole story starts with the borscht when we, three or four years ago, with Ukrainian international affairs and my friend, uh, famous chef in Ukraine, Eugen Klopotenko, we start borscht campaign. We, we apply to UNESCO that borscht is an Ukrainian national heritage of Ukrainian people and culture. And we start a lot of different projects like master classes, uh, pop-up dinners, different events when we can explain what's the borscht, what's Ukraine. Everything started with the borscht. I remember that um, I already was like falling asleep and I saw the text message from my mom. There is two words like, we got war. And it was like nobody slept like the whole night. It, it was terrible night. I mean, since that is terrible time for Ukraine first couple months like a lot of people just keep reposting all this weird and hard stuff on the, on the media and just yelling in the media and I did the same but it doesn't help it's just even more you see that you got more nervous you got more stress and I stopped all doing that I asked to stop my parents and my relatives to do that and my main idea how can uh, you help your country is do whatever you know how to do it. In my case, I'm a chef and I'm continuing to cook and I'm continuing to introduce Ukrainian cuisine to the world. Of course, worked at uh, Veselka in New York. How did you go about creating a menu for Ruta compared to Veselka? What did, what did you want to bring here to Washington, D.C. that might have been different? Good question. Vasalka this year is turning 70 years old. I spent there 12 years. It's, it's like third part of my life. But still, when I was hired as executive chef, I still didn't have opportunity to change a lot. I improve. I try to add some new dishes. But that menu was uh, like permanent for 20, 30, 40 years before me. And here in the new project, I have a chance to bring... Also, I'm originally from Ukraine. I, I have a lot of friends there. I, I've been a, uh, with a lot of trainings from Ukraine, uh, a lot of tasting from Ukraine. I think I knew better what's a real Ukrainian, like modern kitchen. And here in Ruta, we can, I can do like 100% fresh modern Ukrainian menu. Because Vaselka, it's a legendary place, but... Uh, let's say one lady from Poland, she was cooking Ukrainian borscht, but it was a Poland borscht because it's completely different from Ukrainian borscht. But she was cooking for 36 years. And how can I change her recipe? It's impossible. I don't even try to change it because it's already like legendary recipe. Uh, she got a lot of press, media. She got a cool video on YouTube called like, Queen of Borscht of New York. Because she sell, Vaselka sell a week 500 gallons. It's probably the biggest number in the world. That's why I'm here to open my 
love to the food, to open my love to Ukraine and to show the world what's a classic traditional Ukrainian dishes. Like three, four years ago, I would like to say I start myself uh, this diplomacy, like culinary diplomacy. And after that, when we got success with the borscht, I start to work with uh, Ukrainian uh, Ministry of International Affairs, and they hired me as a, a chef diplomat. I'm a real uh, member of culinary diplomacy, and I represent Ukraine in the uh, in U.S. And my main goal is uh, to show to the world, to show to the to U.S. people what's Ukraine, what's Ukrainian cuisine, what kind of dishes we have, what we like, is it healthy, is it not healthy, to show to the world as much as I can. It's my mission. And why is that personal to you, this switch to become a chief diplomat, chef, as it were? It's a funny story. My first education was international relations. Potentially, like, from my first diploma, I, I could be a, a diplomat. But then, when I moved to the U.S., I switched from my, my first diploma of economics and finance, I switched to, I went to culinary school. And then, five, six years later, I kind of combined my culinary education with my international relations. I, w I would like to say my dreams come true, my like, childhood dream to be a diplomat. Then I got experience in the kitchen and I changed my mind and changed my life direction. And finally I combined both. That was Ruta's executive chef, Dima Martseniuk. Now, Ukraine is hardly the only nation looking to promote its culinary heritage. The island nation of Haiti is one of the world's poorest countries, thanks to a rather toxic mix of poor governance and the lasting effects of a devastating earthquake some 15 years ago. But none of that has quashed its rich culinary traditions. Chef Natasha Gomez serves as a tourism ambassador for Haiti in the United States. I met her at an American bistro near her current home in Rockville Center, on the outskirts of New York City. So Haiti is in the Caribbean, beautiful country, lots of history there, first black republic in the world because that was the first revolution led by slaves that went to independence. Our food culture is very diverse, it's very bold, it's very rich, and I would say we have the best food in the Caribbean. I know some people would not want to hear that, but due to influences from the Tainos, the Native American that we had, the Native Indian that we had in the Caribbean, to the French, to the Spanish, to the Africans, and some people from Arabia that was there. So our food is a mix of all that, and it's really good. There's many ways you've gone about presenting that food to the world, to, to, to Americans here in New York and elsewhere. One of the ways you went about it was working with the United Nations on a cookbook that they, that they put out. Tell me about that, what you contributed, what your recipe was that you contributed to that project. I started my culinary journey and I wanted to showcase what was good about Haiti. And at the same time, my parents, they were really concerned about the environment, climate, and eating locally. We had our own garden, so... 
all those things made the type of cuisine that I promote. And that led me to work with various organizations, Kitchen Connection, Chef Manifesto that I'm part of also. It's an alliance of chefs that are working to promote better food for people and planet. And that led also to work with the United Nations, FAO, and other organizations that works also in the same manner. Because we are connected. Food connects us. And we think the better we work as a collective, we can achieve what we want for the sustainable goals. So my recipe was all about Haiti, was all about the farmers that I promote to my organization and my label 100% local. It was about a dish that every farmers take daily in their garden. It's called subjade. Basically, that means it's something that you just went to your garden, something that you have that day, something that it's in season. So whatever they find, and it's all grown locally, it's organic, and in season is very important for us because, you know, when you eat something that is grown locally, is fresher and it has no much impact on the environment. So I came up with that recipe that was very tasty and that presented in a way that they used to eat it, not in a chef-like way. I want to say it because I wanted to showcase our farmers. So you presented it in a very local way. Nothing fancy. If you go to Haiti and you, you want to have a bouillon jardin, what is available, and they will eat vegetables, it's the freshest of the spinach they could find, or the green leaves, the moringa, the plantains, the yam, the carrots, whatever they will find. And I will assure you, it will be an amazing experience to take. You said before we started, diplomacy does not work without food. Why, why do you say that? We know from history that every decision made for humanity was made around a table. When you have a drink with someone, because sharing a meal is the biggest form of communication. Because that way you get to know a person, you get to know a country by its culture, by its food. Because food is love, food is respect, food is community, and all that make us want to share stories. And it's like when you smell something good, the person next to you, you look at that person and say, yes, that smells good. And that conversation starts and you feel more connected to that person in a way too. What is your hope when you look at the future of Haiti. How do you hope that Haiti will be seen a year from now, 10 years from now, by people here in the U.S. and internationally? 10 years from now, I would love Haiti to be a culinary destination. The same way that you say you go to Italy or to France to sample the gastronomy, I would say you're going to the Caribbean, but you are going to Haiti. Because like I said, we have a lot to offer. And Now we see people are more into their health. And I will say maybe by choice, but 80% they doesn't eat meat regularly. So in Haiti, you will find a lot of vegetarian dish. And I will say even 
from the cuisine of the Taino because you know the Taino invented the word babacoa which means barbecue so there's a lot of grill food there's a lot of fried food too it's all about the sweet food the culture the I don't know I don't know how to describe it because you have to go and see it it's like when you hate in Haiti you just what to relax and you forget about everything. Island time is real. <laughs> so you don't see time passing. It's easy to eat fresh food. It's easy to spend a day at the beach and forget about pollution and forget about war and just enjoy your time with family and friends. That was Haitian chef Natasha Gomez. Be sure to also check out her line of Haitian food products and an upcoming book all about the Jean a rare black mushroom that is native to her home country. Finally, a podcast about food and diplomacy would not be complete without a look at France. And while once upon a time French cuisine went unchallenged, these days France has to defend its title. For more, I met with Pascal Confavreau. He's a former economic advisor to French President Emmanuel Macron and currently leads communications at the embassy here in Washington. The great chef of the time was uh, Antonin Carême. And he was saying, Sire, j'ai plus besoin de cuisinier que de diplomate. I need more cook than diplomats. And it was in 1814, September 1814. And he was um, discussing actually the, the fate of France because uh, at Congress of Vienna, he was uh, organized a bit Europe after the Napoleonic uh, Wars. And so uh, that, that's often uh, something uh, that comes to mind when we talk about the soft power that the cuisine, of course, it's a bit uh, cliche, but it's all, there's a bit of truth behind it. So this is Bistro Le Pig. This is uh, one of the French or French-style restaurants in, uh, in Washington. It's quite a legacy one. It's been here for quite a long time. And many of the French persons that I know here, when they are feeling a bit homesick, try to come here. I think we are for Profitral. You're just describing before, but the, the diplomatic lunch, what it means, where, how food and diplomacy sort of come together here. It's maybe a common uh, saying, but I think people don't exactly say the same thing when they are having lunch or dinner together or when they are just meeting formally in an office. Because you create connections, you create a common interest. Is it what you eat? And we, we share something with you. When I invite you over lunch, French recipes and French cuisine, but I bring you in my world and we have something else to discuss. As you worked in, in culinary diplomacy, gastro diplomacy as well, what would you say is the central goal of it? Is it about the tourism aspect? Is it about pulling people into France? What, what comes to mind most for you? Too many in France, in the business, and in politics thought cuisine would be great because it's French cuisine and we don't have to take care of that and that was a mistake we have to take collectively care of it it was not something only by the of course by the government it's uh, of course mainly by the profession in itself by the business in itself but you have many great cuisine in the world everywhere and people are more and more interested in, in cuisine everyone is a, an influencer in cuisine now everyone takes a picture of his plate, posts that on Instagram, on TikTok, does his own recipes and so on. And so we thought we had some things to tell and some things to show. Great chefs, new women, new, new men chefs. Also a lot of chefs coming from the immigration in France who are inventing fantastic things, you know, in uh, mixing different uh, traditions. Of, and that's what we, we wanted to do. 
related to that, it was, it was how that connected the international gastro diplomacy connected to the average medium tier French restaurant in France and why it was so important to get that medium tier French restaurant on board this idea that French cuisine internationally matters. So it's a big thing when an American, a Japanese, a Chinese, a Russian tourist come to France. One in third, they come from for having a, a food experience. And so when they are disappointed because they had a bad experience, it has an impact on social networks, it has an impact on their friends and families. So we had to hold our rank. I think there was a, a collective wake-up call in the profession. So many um, chefs, more and more vocal. And there was also a social change in the society in France, which is more and more to have environmentally friendly seasonal food, not to, to eat a tomato in uh, November. And the authorities also have, for instance, we, we established some, uh, some guidelines. If you wanted to have a, a label uh, homemade, a fait maison, you had to respect criteria because the homemade, of course, is attractive for many uh, consumers. So the one aspect is, as we've talked about, the promotion of French cuisine abroad. But there is a challenge when it comes to actually monetizing that to ex export things from France to other countries. Talk to me a bit about that challenge. What makes the French cuisine, I think, incredible is, is the know-how. The, the gesture of the hand, the, the know-how that chefs after chefs give to another and the innovation. Of course, at the center of that, there is also the product. But sometimes you have a cuisine like the Italian cuisine. It's made when you do some pizza, you, you have the, the ham and the, and, and the tomato. And so you have to export them also at the same time from Italy. This is sometimes not exactly as powerful in the French cuisine. But we have these fantastic products. And the question how this image of abroad can help foster the export of these great French products like, of course, cheese, wines, but ham, uh, mushrooms, all, all this kind of uh, stuff. How can you support them? It takes time, of course, for the profession to self-organize. But it's also a collective thing where if we all have that in mind at the same time, things can change. That was Pascal Crofavreau, former economic advisor to Emmanuel Macron. And that is all from me. I'm Chris Termack for Monocle here in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks to Chris for this week's Culinary Diplomacy Special. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Washington, D.C. Also remember our spin-off show Food Neighborhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Markus Hippi. The program was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Kellen McLean. Once again we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is John Mellencamp with hot dogs and hamburgers. Thanks for listening and until next week. Now everybody has got to